This is hell. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell with the school year getting underway in many places across the United States with fresh, optimistic minds excited about what they will learn in the upcoming year. With so many proud parents sharing images of their high school graduates moving on to college and into the dorms, it's a good time to remind everyone involved that if a future, a life choice to pursue a career in academia is being considered, you may want to re-examine that choice, as academia is likely not what you think it is. And if you are the romantic type, like I am, that sees academia as a life-loving books, uh, reading and writing, teaching and becoming a mentor, according to today's guest, you are sadly mistaken. In a few minutes, we will have the return of award-winning essayist and critic William Derezowitz, who will be on to discuss his essay, Why I Left Academia, Since You're Wondering, which appears in his new collection, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. Bill is a recipient of the Height Prize in the Humanities, the National Book Critics Circle's Belakian Citation for Excellence in Reviewing, and a Sydney Award. He is also a three-time National Magazine Award nominee. Bill taught English at Yale and Columbia before becoming a full-time writer in 2008. He has held visiting positions at Bard, Scripps, and Claremont McKenna Colleges, as well as at the University of San Diego. He's a member of the Board of Directors of Tivnu, Building Justice, a Jewish social justice gap year in Portland, Portland, Oregon, and of the Advisory Council of Project Wayfinder, which runs purpose learning programs in schools across the United States and beyond. Bill was last on This Is Hell back in August 2015 to discuss his Harper's article, The Neoliberal Arts, How College Sold Its Soul to the Market. He was actually on August 29th, 2015, seven years and one day ago, and that was not intentional in our scheduling. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Excellent Sheep, The Death of the Artist, a sobering account of what it's like to be any kind of artist in America today. Find all of his work at his website, again, BillDerezowitz.com, and you can follow Bill on Twitter at WDerezowitz. I'm going to spell this out for you once. D-E-R-E-S-I-E-W-I-C-Z. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, anything new by you? Uh, I've been dog-sitting for a week. Is that why you got sick? No, I Did the already dog get was you sick. sick. No, my <laughs> boss got me sick at the mushroom place. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, he. I I filled in for somebody, and I was working with my boss, and like I I woke up a few days later with a sore throat, and then I saw my boss a few days later, and I told him I was like, yeah, I don't remember being around anybody sick, and he was like, oh, like the day after I worked with you, I felt deathly ill and just like couldn't oh, get out of thanks. bed for three days. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you very much. I appreciate <laughs> it. Luckily, I didn't get that sick, but it was that kind of annoying sick where you're not that sick. So you try and do everything still <laughs> and do never you, get better. So. Do you like the dog that your dog's sitting? 
I do. I'm going to miss him. He's going home today. Well, let's see. Oh, so he's been staying with you at your house. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. My so you don't have to go anywhere. Yeah. Your cat. He lives cr- all the way across town, but my cats aren't so happy. Yeah, I would think so. Not such a great situation. So what's new by me is, like I said last week, uh, it's what's old by me. And that is that is the return of our weekly meet and greet. That's more of a drink and think. This is how office hours, which have returned to their regular time every Wednesday, beginning at around 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. So last Wednesday, August 24th, we hosted our very first official This Is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 in uh, West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Our very first office hours since the first cases of COVID-19 were diagnosed in Chicago way back in February of 2020. We told you on the most uh, one of the most recent shows, we told you last week, how a listener in Milwaukee, Riley, emailed and asked if he should join us as he is, quote, a teacher desperately trying to enjoy my last week of summer. Well, Riley did join us, and about a dozen other listeners joined us as well. But before he did, he Riley had a bit of, a bit of an adventure here in Chicago, uh, which he described during office hours. Now, I, I wanted to make certain my retelling of his story was accurate, so I asked Riley if he could write to us and explain what happened to him, and he did. So Riley writes, yes, I had a great time at office hours. More people should really come to that. It was a blast. So before going to Carrie's, I was looking for an old video store called Odd Obsession and could only find an address online for a quote-unquote new location. Turns out the video archives are now in the basement of a small new place called Grave Face in Bucktown. They had some really cool stuff in the shop, including huge hand-painted Ghanaian movie posters which are incredible and worth checking out. Riley was showing us a a book of these movie posters from Ghana, and while they were movies for, or depicting U.S. movies, they are movie posters for U.S. movies, the poster's themes had nothing to do with the movie it was representing. For instance, as I described on Patreon, our Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash thisishell last week, there's one for the film Mrs. Doubtfire, where the painting depicts the title character, getting poked in the eye with a broom handle while the disembodied torso of someone who is labeled as uh, Robin Williams holds Doubtfire's foot. The poster that caught Riley's eye the most was one of Space Jam, where Michael Jordan is inexplicably portrayed holding an Uzi submachine gun. And while I have never had any interest in watching Space Jam, if Michael Jordan's character is sporting an Uzi in that movie... I'm suddenly far more interested in seeing what it's all about. What plot twist could lead Michael Jordan to use an Uzi during Space Jam? Riley continues describing how in the back of Odd Obsession, they also had a small museum dedicated to circus sideshows, the occult. And to my surprise, Riley writes, a huge amount of John Wayne Gacy's personal effects. Someone working there has a lot of documents related to Gacy's business and is trying to find additional unfound corpses and accomplices using the documents. This was a very surreal, disturbing experience for me, Chuck. And if that sounds like your cup of tea, you can check out Grave Face on Milwaukee and Bucktown. So pleased that truly weird stuff like this still exists. Look forward to seeing you again, Riley. Riley also wrote to us saying that I love the Mrs. Doubtfire one, too. I think you did a good job of describing it. Or the Space Jam poster where Michael Jordan is holding the Uzi. 
And now we cannot promise that if you come from out of town to join us for our weekly Wednesday office hours at Carrie's Lounge or our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party that's happening on during the last weekend of summer on Saturday, September 17th, that you will be as happy as Riley about truly weird stuff still existing in Chicago. But there is a very high likelihood that someone like Riley will be attending and sharing weird stories because that's generally what happens during our meet and greets and anniversary parties. For instance, Riley mentioning Ghanaian movie posters led to Pete, the owner of Carrie's Lounge, telling us how he ended up doing voiceovers for movies in multiple languages in Hungary. And keep in mind, Pete does not speak Hungarian. But more important than the weirdness that often happens during This Is Hell office hours, which occur every Wednesday evening beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience. This week's question from hell is, what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? That is quite a question from hell. I still do not have an answer to this week's question from hell. I'm just getting my answer in for last week's question from hell. Uh, the per- answer is very long. Is it? <laughs> uh, I want to hear it. it. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Uh, the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell we do not have any commercial sponsors we don't take any grant money we can't we don't make enough profit to be a not-for-profit so without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page you can tweet it to us you can email it to us but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorton in the moment of truth again our facebook page is facebook.com slash this is hell radio our Twitter handle is at This Is Hell Radio, and you can email Chuck at This Is uh, We got another email that we'll be sharing with you following our conversation with Bill. Coming up, why a career in academia may not be for you, or for that matter, anybody else. Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? What dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? We'll also have this week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell the promise of a life dedicated to constantly learning pursuing education can be very attractive even alluring if not tempting enticing even seductive learning for a lifetime and passing on that knowledge to others being a trusted advisor to the next generation of young people would seem unbelievably rewarding but what if the way we imagine a life in academia is not only naive but a myth when it comes to what education has become today. Here with a perspective on academia that students likely will not hear from their professors 
and Instructors Award-winning essayist and critic William DeResowitz returns to This Is Hell to talk about his essay, Why I Left Academia, Sincere Wondering, which appears in his new collection, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. Welcome back to This Is Hell, William. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's great having you back on the show. I just want to point out to everybody that you can search on uh, Bill's last name and find our interview that we did with him seven years and one day ago today, The Neoliberal Arts, How College Sold It Sold the Market, and you should definitely check out that writing at Harper's as well as his new collection, again, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. You write that why in 2008, after 10 years on the faculty at Yale, did I say goodbye not only to that institution, but to the profession as a whole? A lot of people have asked me that question. A lot more have assumed they know the answer. Did I quit in disgust at the corruption of the academic enterprise? Could I no longer bear to participate in the perpetuation of the class system? If I didn't get tenure at Yale, did I regard it as beneath my dignity to work at a less prestigious institution? No, no, and no. So what does it say to you, Bill, about the state of academia when people assumed you left because of corruption, the class tenure or, or class system or tenure, despite these not being the reasons for you leaving academia? Did you see academia as corrupt classist with an unfair tenure system? Uh, yeah, all of those, I suppose. I mean, I think people don't really have a very good understanding of how academia works. And I think that that's why they made those assumptions about why I might have left. Um, as I say in the next sentence, I left because I didn't have a choice. I didn't want to leave. And, and I want to stipulate as we get started that the essay is called Why I Left Academia. It's not why everybody should leave academia. It's not why nobody should go into academia. I mean, academia is a big, broad set of institutions and fields, and not everything is the same at every kind of institution or every field. You know, there are the sciences and the humanities and all the vocational fields, and you might work at a research university or a community college or a liberal arts college. So, it's a big, there are you know, hundreds of thousands of people in academia. Um, I wrote the piece because I wanted to talk about my experiences and specifically, I think, with the, with the humanities in general and the field of English lit in particular, how my experience you know, in the 90s and 2000s maybe uh, exemplifies some of the larger problems with the direction in which those fields, and maybe in some respects, academia in general has gone. So why do you think that it has, uh, the changes that have uh, taken place in academia, why do you think it has had a greater impact on a field like studying English literature than in other fields? Right. So there, there's some major things that have happened, and they're not necessarily related to each other. But if you ask me that question, there has been, um, for decades now, a a, uh, a a gradual um politicization and uh ideal i don't know what the word is if there's one word ideologicization uh, it, it, uh, uh, um, an infusion of of an ideology into those fields and i mean it's not any mystery now because it is what for lack of a better term people call wokeness now now, I know that that word is used on the right, but it's also used on the heterodox left to criticize these um, trends away from open inquiry 
free expression, free exchange of ideas, welcoming of dissent to ideological rigidity and political conformity. And uh, this all really started in academia and it started specifically in humanities departments. Uh, and one of the fields in which it, in which it started most um, intensely is English lit, literary studies in general. So that when I started graduate school in 1989, what we would later call this, and you know, we called it political correctness then, uh, was in full force already in 1989. And it's only in the last few years that it's become, that it's kind of broken out into the world at large and it's become visible to everybody. Oh, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is if this is the things that are happening on campus reflecting society, or is this things that are happening on campus affecting society? Is this a reflection of the greater world around the campus, or is this the campus imposing an ideology on the rest of the world? Um, I, listen, I think at this point it's kind of a feedback loop because it's all the all the all the liberal institutions have been captured by 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 this ideology at this point and and not just the ideology but the sociology that comes with it which is the kind of constant mutual policing so it's in all the media big media institutions it's in the arts it's in entertainment it's in the nonprofits it's in the universities but um certainly philosophically it starts it starts in the universities and it did only existed it only existed there on campus and not even something not even in a way that would have been uh, visible to college students it was just something that happened in graduate departments if you were a graduate student if you were an academic um but i would say that there is a larger thing here and this maybe brings us a little further afield than we want to go because even I would be skeptical if somebody told me, well, this thing started English departments and now it's taken over the world. I mean, it's true that these, these institutions, especially the elite institutions, have been producing you know, the, the, the ranks of the leadership class for a long time now. So they've, they've had a chance to promulgate this philosophy for a long time. And now we see sort of all the younger members, you know, staff members at the New York Times or the New Yorker or people at NPR or... Again, you know, people in the arts, people in MFA programs, they're sort of all products of that. But re recently it's, a, it's occurred to me that actually in some ways, well, a lot of this philosophy uh, uh, seems alien or exogenous to American philosophical traditions. A lot of it comes from French thought. The moral impulse is actually very, very deeply rooted in American society. And what I, what I see now, what I've, the way I've come to see it now is that um, this is just the old Puritanism in a different guise. Um, the sort of the old, the old sort of religious and then secular institutions that put themselves in charge of, of, um, of patrolling everybody's behavior and everybody's thought and eradicating sin from the world and creating a godly society and punishing sinners and shaming sinners uh, that's the real underlying continuity. Um, and it's, it's just kind of borrowed the latest, the latest sort of intellectual uh, fad, say, the latest intellectual trend to, uh, to infuse that kind of centuries-old sort of um, uh, moralistic impulse, moralizing impulse. 
you write that one of the reasons that you wanted to get into academia is to change the world. The way that you're describing it so far, it sounds like uh, what has happened within English literature departments and within the curriculum is it has changed the world, but what you would say would be that it has changed the world for the worst. Before you went into academia, did you believe that the study of English literature could change the world for the worse? Listen, I, I, I have to correct you. I did not go into academia to change the world. What I say is that a lot of my classmates in, in the 90s in the Columbia English Department wanted to change the world. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Which I thought was ridiculous. And the one person who, who really was committed to it decided to leave and go to law school because she thought it was a silly way. You know, writing you know, journal articles in English lit was a silly way to do it. But... In a sense, you're right, and I was wrong, right? I mean, I was looking at these, at my fellow students who we all taught freshman composition. Some of them tried to turn that into ideological doctrination. They would bring in Marx, they would bring in Foucault. And I thought, you know, this is, uh, we're not respecting our students when we do that. We shouldn't be teaching them what to think. We should be teaching them how to think. But I also thought, you know, it's not like you've produced a generation of Marxists, so it's not like you're actually doing anything. But in retrospect, I think I was wrong. I think that's exactly what happened. Um, uh, you know, I think young people actually, for all that um, sort of the, the typical college student, typical young person, sees himself as anti-authoritarian because they may be in rebellion against the authority of their parents. Actually, young people also, I mean, part of being young is looking for alternative authorities to put yourself under. In, uh, another way to say that is looking for somebody to tell you how to think. I'm sorry, to tell you what to think. Um, and the opposite, sort of just learning how to think and then thinking on your own uh, is actually much harder because, and it's rarer and it's because it's socially risky and it's never been more socially risky than now because of the internet, because of social media. So how thin is the line then between teaching people what to think as opposed to how to think? Or isn't that line very thin whatsoever and it's clearly demarcated? How would you uh, differentiate the two, what to think as opposed to how to think? They're completely different. They're like pretty much the opposite. Um, teaching somebody what to think is just handing them a bunch of, you know, a bunch of ideas and saying, believe this. You know, I'm giving you Foucault. Foucault is right. Judith Butler is right. Ibram Kendi is right. This is what you should believe. Um, how to think is a completely different operation. When a teacher is teaching you how to think, you're going to end the semester not knowing what they actually what they actually believe because they haven't introduced that in the classroom. What they've done is they've they've uh, introduced a bunch of different ideas that may be competing ideas and taught you how to approach each of them fairly, open-mindedly, but also skeptically. They've encouraged arguments among classmates, respectful arguments. Um, where they do not take sides and where the job is, and this is also the job when you comment on a student's paper, is, is, um, is to push them to think as clearly as possible, to say, hey, what you say here contradicts what you, what you said there, or this term isn't clear enough, or what about this thing that you haven't considered, or what is the implication of this point that you're making? This seems to me to be the implication. Do you really stand by that? That's none of that has to do with what to think. None of that has to do with specific content. It's all about the procedures of thought. Is it then, is it kind of akin to acting as an editor? 
Uh, no, I mean, not an editor. I mean, I did bring up the the fact that this is also something that happens, you know, in the in the context of writing, you know, of commenting on papers. And I guess in that sense, you could say it's an editor, but the paper isn't the final product. The, the clarity of thought, the power of a student's thinking uh, that increases when you teach them how to think, uh, that's the goal. So I'm not sure what the analogy would be. I mean, I suppose in some sense, you're being a lawyer in, in the sense that you are drilling down on arguments very uh, minutely and intensively, uh, but you're not being an, a lawyer in an adversarial sense. Uh, I'm not sure there's an analogy. I mean, I think the comparison is your, that's what it is to be a teacher. It's not a comparison. It's just, this is the job. And you write of the way that people are taught today, novels, poems, stories, plays. These are texts no different in kind from other texts. The purpose of studying them is not to appreciate or understand them. It is to interrogate them for their ideological investments in patriarchy and white supremacy and white imperialism and ethnocentrism. And then to unmask and debunk them, to drain them of their poisonous persuasive power, the passions that are meant to draw people to the profession of literary study these last many years are not aesthetic, they are political. What is the student distracted from learning about literature and in literature when their focus for criticism is whether there is patriarchy, white supremacy, Western imperialism, and ethnocentrism in the work? What are they distracted from learning? Right. So that thank you for reading that passage. That's a capsule summary of what I mean when I talk about how uh, the study of literature has become political and ideological. Um, what you're distracted from learning is anything that the book has to tell you, because what you're doing is you are imposing present categories on the past in order to condemn the past for moral crimes. So, oh, Shakespeare's a patriarchal. Okay, well, I mean, maybe he is, but what have you actually learned from Shakespeare that you didn't know already, that you didn't know in advance? I mean, you knew in advance that you were going to decide that he was patriarchal. He's a white guy 500 years ago or 400 years ago. Like, the, you, 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 do, you haven't learned anything from this encounter. Whereas if you uh, open yourself to the text in a receptive way, which is to say, I'm not going to prejudge it and I'm going to... Uh, let it teach me what it has to teach me. And I'm going to do the work because these are complex works of literature to figure out what it has to say. And what it has to say is it's sort of really an endless number of really interesting things that really might just blow your mind open about the world, about yourself, about human relationships, about the way you see the world. It's disruptive. It's disruptive in a really wonderful way. Um, it's powerful in a wonderful way. Um, but none of that disruption is going to happen, right? So you're just going to, if you, if you don't open yourself to it, if you just just impose this this ideological grid on it, you know. I mean, I think we have this you know, belief. We sort of, you know, say leftist progressive college students and professors have this belief that they're very transgressive, that they're very disruptive, that you know they're speaking truth to power. Whereas I see them as completely stagnant and conservative, and actually already holding the power, holding the institutional power. Um, the risk of coming open-minded into a work of art, whether it's literature or any other kind of work of art, or to a philosopher, you know, say an ancient philosopher or even a contemporary philosopher, is that you might, that 
those rigid structures of belief that you're so emotionally invested in might be challenged. And that can be really destabilizing. But I think it's necessary for continued mental and even, I would say, emotional and, and yes, moral growth, right? Change. Change is life. You point out that anyone in the academic humanities, anyone who is, who's gotten within smelling distance of the academic humanities these last 40 years will see the problem. Loving books is not why people are supposed to become English professors, and it hasn't been for a long time. Loving books is scoffed at, or would be if anybody ever copped to it. The whole concept of literature, still more of art, has been discredited. What happened 40 years ago to lead to art being discredited? What And what do you mean by art being discredited? Right. So, I mean, this is connected to what we were just talking about. And it's not like something happened suddenly 40 years ago. But, um, I mean, it's a number of things. I think the 60s discredited the distinction between high art and low art. Uh, so all art is, is sort of is equal. And this, this had to do with art, you know, sort of Western art being seen as elitist, seen, seen as classist. I think that's a big mistake. I think it's been, it's certainly been deployed the elite as a, as a weapon of, you know, status or status competition. That doesn't mean that it's inherently like that. Uh, so there was that. And then around the same time, like I said, sort of French theory started to be imported across the Atlantic. Uh, and French theory was all about this kind of active debunking and unmasking. Uh, I mean, the, the most important names are the ones everybody's heard, Derrida and Foucault. They're very different, but in some ways they can be combined and have been combined in the academy uh, to say, uh, look, th this is all, you know, culture is just a manifestation of power structures. It's really just a, a set, you know, uh, power produces, you know, this is Foucault, right? Like power produces discourse, it produces language, you know, which will, would also include culture. And then the discourse in turn sort of produces us, like, like it, it speaks through us, it creates our selfhood, it creates our subjectivity, and it turns us into subjects of these power structures, like patriarchy and white supremacy and, and Western imperialism and so forth. Uh, so therefore, art and culture, you know, it's not, you know, this precious repository of human wisdom, it's not an opportunity, you know, it's not these powerful sort of engines of reflection, uh, it is the sort of, you know, evil power that's masked in a pleasant form and therefore must be unmasked. Uh, the thing is, I, you know, it's like a lot of people clearly didn't actually believe that. Like, I mean, on some level, I didn't say this in the piece, but on some level, many, many people who study literature actually do it because they love literature. The tragedy is that you're, you're really not supposed to say that. Like literally, you're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to admit that you just love these books or you do it, you know, sort of quietly behind closed doors. But the official discourse, another part of the, another aspect of the problem, and I would say this of wokeness in general, is this, this tremendous hypocrisy, right? Like we, we say one thing in private and a completely different thing in public. Uh, and that's one of the things. Um, but this is what gets transmitted to students. And it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons why enrollment numbers for the humanities have plummeted over the last 15 years and the main one is financial but i think one of the big ones is like if you tell students long enough that like this work is evil they'll just be like well why should i bother studying it at all why don't we just ignore it 
You point out that gradually over the next few years, I got the lay of the professional terrain I'd entered into. It was marked not only by a relentless animus against the works of the past and the dead white men who wrote them, but by a constant effort to enlist them in contemporary battles, by an enthrallment with jargon, a commitment to verbal opacity, and a suspicion of clear conversational prose by intellectual dishonesty and flabbiness and sloppiness, all implicitly excused by the alleged rightness of the cause, by an adolescent sense of moral superiority, by a pervasive atmosphere of ideological surveillance. So you write alleged rightness of the cause. As you saw it, what was that cause? Well, I mean, it's everything that we were just talking about. You know, we're, you know, we're going to smash all the hierarchies of power. And we're gonna, you know, create some unspecified utopia. Now, I should say, look, I'm a progressive. Um, I see myself as a progressive, kind of in the Bernie Sanders sense. You know, I think uh, inequality is is a is a you know inequality is something that needs to be that needs to be fought. That you know inequality is wrong. I mean, there are conservatives who think inequality is the natural order of things, or that it's healthy. Um, you know, I see a society that's deeply unfair. I see that mainly in economic terms. I also recognize that this is true in terms of gender, in terms of race. But the vision, you know, the, the vision that I saw being promulgated in the academy was, I mean, the, the rightness of the cause. It was, it was a kind of, um, I, I feel like ultimately it was a kind of uh, an undirected rage. Uh, that was not politically uh, intelligent, that kind of operated in its own, I mean, it was strategically politically very foolish, as I think we've seen in recent years. Um, and, and mainly it just operated on this incredibly abstract intellectual level that didn't seem to have much contact with actual people's actual lives. But it was in the, it was in the name of this that and sort of any uh, any mischief could be justified. Um, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that more. We are speaking with award-winning essayist and critic William Derezowitz, who returns to This Is Hell to talk about his essay, Why I Left Academia, Since You're Wondering, which appears in his new collection, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and society, you write that what disgusted me the most, uh, uh, you know, aside from everything that we've been discussing already, was not the intellectual corruption. It was the careerism. Was there a link between that intellectual corruption and careerism? Did participating in one lead to success in the other? Yeah, well, that's the thing. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily questioning people's professions of belief. I mean, maybe they believed what they said, maybe they didn't. I mean, I think at a certain point, it sort of becomes irrelevant. Point is, academia is a tough racket. Uh, for decades now, the job market has been extremely tight. Hundreds of people apply for every position. Uh, many, maybe even most people who graduate with PhDs, even from the most prestigious programs, will not find tenure track positions. So it gets really cutthroat. And in order, to, in order to succeed, in order to be able to have a career, you need to become a careerist, which means doing everything for the sake of, of finding a place, including what you study and what you purport, what you profess to believe, right? So it's like, do people believe the things they're saying? Do they believe that, you know, if they're like, 
gone all in for deconstruction, they'll say, well, language can't really create meaning or, you know, there's no such thing as the self, right? Because like I said, if we go, the self is just sort of a product of, you know, forces. Do you really believe that? Or are you just saying that because it's the thing you're supposed to say? It's actually a huge problem in academia. I've been hearing about this more even in the sciences, where I suspect it's probably been true for a long time. I just haven't heard about it, which is that uh, although ostensibly you're supposed to produce original research and there's nothing better than, you know, a breakthrough that challenges the, you know, all the received wisdom in a field. Actually, people don't like that. People feel very threatened by that. People are uh, invested in, in the status quo way of thinking because that's what their work is about. And if you discredit that, then their work has been discredited and therefore their social position is going to be discredited. So that's, I mean, that may be something, and I mean, I know your intro talked about, well, young person, are you thinking of going into academia? Uh, this, I think, can be a, 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 big pro- a big, big problem, even aside from the ideological political stuff we're talking about, is that academia really, uh, it's, it's a place where conformists tend to thrive and mavericks tend to have a lot of trouble. We have heard that several times uh, in our conversations dating back to 1999 with the economist Dean Baker of the Center for Economic Policy and Research, how that happens with schools of economics, how purporting to you know, support an idea that is counter to the people who sponsor, say, the business school or the economic school can be a dead end when it comes to academia. What impact do you think that pursuit of careerism has on a student's education, which is supposed to be the most important thing you would think in academia. Uh, yes. So let me just say first, I mean, I haven't heard those conversations you just mentioned with the economist. Some fields are conservative and, and the orthodoxy is, you know, free market capitalism, like maybe economics and business schools, undoubtedly. But I'm talking about fields, and there are a lot of them now. It's not just the humanities, it's also a lot of the social sciences outside of economics, anthropology, sociology, probably political science too at this point, where the orthodoxies are leftist orthodoxies. And what you get in trouble for challenging are those. Um, what effect does it have on students? This is sort of the $100,000 question. And this is, this is something that I think all prospective college students need to understand and certainly all prospective academics. Um, for a very long time now, really well over a century, with the birth of the modern university, really in the late 19th century, and then the gradual spreading of the research model across all the institutions of American higher education, you know, the liberal arts colleges and sort of the sort of less prestigious, sort of maybe not, you know, not fully research institutions, but the research model spreads and the research model says that the purpose of an academic is to produce scholar is to produce knowledge, right? Universities are sometimes called knowledge factories, and knowledge is you know knowledge is a, is established through peer review. So knowledge means stuff that you publish in academic journals or with academic presses. If we're talking about a book, and that's the only thing that matters. Yes, we are nominally educational institutions, but in practice, and every academic knows this. Any minute spent on anything other than your research is a step towards career suicide. 
and specifically teaching, because of course, teaching is a very large responsibility and it can take a lot of time and it does take a lot of time if you do it right. But if you do it right, you are hurting your, your career uh, uh, prospects. And this is one of the big reasons. There's a great book uh, that came out, I think last year called The Amateur Hour by a guy named Jonathan Zimmerman, who's a historian of American higher education. And it's a book, I think it may be the first book that is a history of college teaching in America, The Amateur Hour. And basically he says, um, teaching has always sucked <laughs> and students have always complained. And one of the main reasons it's always sucked is this reason that I'm just talking about, is that this is not what teachers, this is not what professors are paid to do. And one of the reasons, as I talk about, one of the main reasons why I left academia was because I really liked teaching and I really cared about teaching and I really cared about my students. So I put a lot of time into them, which meant that I was taking time away from my research, from publishing. You know, publish or perish. So in the end, I perished. You also mentioned uh, being a mentor and the importance of mentorship when it comes to the teacher-student relationship. Why is that relationship so important and is it overlooked when it comes to teaching a student? Right. So I'm talking about, uh, I mean, I'm talking about the kinds of things that happen outside of the class, the kind of things that happens in office hours where you take time to get to know a student and to let the student sort of unburden themselves if they want to about what's going on in their lives, about I mean, it's not like a confessional sort of therapy couch thing. It's like, you know, I would have a freshman and, you know, I would, I would insist that they all come in to talk to me at least once. And a lot of them never came back and that was fine. But I would ask them about themselves, you know, where are you from? And why did you come to this college in particular? And what do you hope to study? And, you know, gradually a lot of them got the uh, got the implication that I was opening to open to hearing them talk about whatever questions they had about their education and what they wanted to do with their lives. Because of course, a lot of students will have doubts, will have questions, will have confusion. And then the job of being a mentor, being advisor, is again, not to tell them what to do. I never told students what to do. The job is to ask good questions that help them listen to themselves, help them figure out what it is they might want to do. Again, this is a process that takes time. I found it incredibly gratifying. I mean, what we're talking about is building human relationships and helping human beings that are sitting right in front of you. And to this day, I haven't been at Yale for 14 years. I'm still in, not only still in touch with a lot of former students, I've become friends with probably half a dozen former students, you know, people who are just friends now. They don't even think of me as their former professor. They're, you know, in their late thirties by this point. So that's what I'm talking about. But again, uh, almost nobody does this. Almost no professor does this because you're just not paid to do it. And it's kind of like not smart to do it. As you write, and you mentioned earlier, the worst mistake was to think for yourself. People said things that they obviously didn't believe or wouldn't have believed if they had bothered to subject them to the test of their own experience, that language is incapable of making meaning, that the self is a construct, but that the climate forced them to avow. Students stuck their fingers in the air to see 
which way the theoretical winds were blowing, designing their dissertations to catch the swell of the latest trend. Names of departmental stars were dropped in the graduate lounge like aces in a round of poker. The whole enterprise seemed completely self-enclosed. So just aside aside from what you do talk about there, the writing. That was graduate students, yeah. yeah. The the, the writing there, I just wanted to say, is just spectacular. So if it was uh, self-enclosed, what did you understand it as separate from? If they were separated from out the, the outside world of outside the world of academia, uh, what causes that separation? Right, I mean, separated from the world outside of academia. I think separated from from the actual literature that we're studying. I think people are separating themselves from them themselves. Right, it's like they're people who don't seem to have their feet on the ground, um, who don't seem to sort of like be honest in a fundamental way about who they are, even with themselves. Um, It becomes self-enclosed. You see, this is true. This is a good question. It's an interesting question. See, this is not true of other fields, right? Because when you're studying science, you're actually studying something in the world and, you know, the bridge has to stand up or the drug has to work, right? There's a material reality that you're testing your ideas against. In, in, in literary study, it can, it, it can just be, I mean, there's no test like that, right? There's no sort of place where your ideas have to cash out into the real world that, that sort of tests them. You're just, you're just creating interpretations of works of literature or devising larger theories about, you know, the nature of literature. Um, and they can just, and they not only can, but ultimately just kind of become ultimately, you know, a, a completely self-referential, right? That, that's sort of what I mean by self-enclosure. Like the only thing that this is good for, and a- actually even in practical terms, right? The only thing that writing a, uh, a journal article is good for is to take it to, you know, is to be able to like give a paper at a conference or, uh, get your next job or just, you know, be part of the conversation within the profession. But there's nobody outside of the profession who actually uses that knowledge, who wants that knowledge, who can even understand that knowledge, which is ironic. I've never really realized this before, but it's ironic if you're supposedly in the knowledge production business. You know, again, an engineer, you know, you can go out and build a building, a sociologist, I mean, the social sciences often become the basis of policy. You know, somebody studies, you know, criminal behavior, whatever it is. But in, yeah, I mean, in the humanities, it's, it just serves to perpetuate itself. The only people reading this stuff are other people doing this stuff. And uh, the whole enterprise could be eliminated and nobody would actually notice. That's it's, it's just very stunning. You explained that enduring the endless odyssey of... Scholarly publications, submitting, 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 rejection, 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 submitting once more, revising, 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 six months, 12 months, 18 months, all for a single precious line on your CV and a readership of approximately zero. In the conferences, oh, the conferences, you fly across the country to sit in airless ballrooms scented with the odor of professional futility, listening to airless talks. You shuffle from panel to panel with your name tag and your conference folder and your shoulder bag like a middle manager at a sales convention. Is that the point? Has academia been professionalized (laughs) to resemble being a middle manager engaged in the trade of education, which is interchangeable in its approach to any 
other profession? Is that the point? Is this like kind of, I hate to use this word, but kind of the privatization, the neoliberalization? Is, is this part of the professionalization of education? Well, we should distinguish between two things. There is a neoliberalization and a marketization of the academy. This isn't necessarily that. I mean, when we talk about professionalization or bureaucratization, it doesn't have to be uh, under the aegis of the market. It could just be in, the, you know, in a nonprofit context. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, professionalization, this is, this is, again, it's the whole, it's what William James in 1903 called the PhD octopus. It's something that's existed in the profession for well over a century. And I'm giving a picture of sort of the dreary professional futility that it can sometimes involve. Now, listen, I obviously have a bad attitude. I hated going to these conferences. I thought the papers were stupid. Not everybody feels that way. I mean, I had colleagues who were genuinely energized by the work they were doing. They were intellectually engaged with it. They were uh, they were eager to go to conferences and panels and to interact with 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 fellow members of the field. And so, I don't want to discourage people for that reason. And you know, and and even today, I mean, academia in so many ways has become such a shitty profession. There's still a lot of people who get gratification out of it. Um, I think anyone thinking of going into it needs to go in with their eyes open. And the most important thing they need to know is that it could be extremely hard for them to get a job. I mean, that's the most important thing. Uh, you know, beyond that, I mean, uh, you know, uh, yes, it can feel very, uh, bureaucratized and professional in a dreary way that that was my experience. But like I said, it's not everybody's experience. You mentioned an instructor, and if I if I am describing this in any way inaccurately, please correct me. But you mentioned an instructor uh, talking to a class and telling them that they needed to know their in ideological position in one of the earliest classes of the semester. And you write that graduate students are there to be professionalized. College students come to you because... They're hungry for enlightenment. Books for them are still about life. Graduate students need to demonstrate how much they know. They've settled into their intellectual position, and they'll defend it to the death. Is it possible to change or amend your intellectual position, your ideological position, as you go through graduate school? How much flexibility is allowed in your intellectual or ideological development during a career in academia? Right. Again, listen, I, I'm sure there are plenty of people who, who evolve intellectually. I'm not, you know, negating that possibility. But again, think about so much of what we've talked about. Um, first of all, the whole, the whole field has become ideologically rigid to begin with. So it's not like there's a lot of room to maneuver. But also the career incentives are such that you're really, this is another problem, right? They want, they want you to have a really well-defined this can be a problem in MFA programs too, by the way. They want you to come in with a very well-defined understanding of who you are already. They don't want you to come in to search and explore, not in graduate school. They want you to know even not just what field you want to study, but even the beginning of an idea of what dissertation you're going to write, which, you know, which I think is terrible because it shuts down that opportunity for intellectual exploration, even just to take courses in a variety of fields. You're often you know, expected to know, or you're, you know, who do you want to study with? Like, I want to go to X department to, to study with X professor. So you're kind of, you're kind of, you are to a certain extent already locked in. And, uh, and um, 
I, I think, I mean, I, I haven't, certainly haven't seen a lot of people who go through a great intellectual evolution in the course of graduate school. Let's, let's put it that way. A couple more questions for you, and then we'll let you go, Bill. You write that uh, it's a story of a profession that is eating its young when it comes to academia. So what do you mean by it's eating its young, and is eating its young sustainable? What happens to education if it continues to eat its young? Right. So this is actually something that we've gestured at, but haven't really talked about squarely. But, and I'm glad that you brought this up before we have to, we have to stop. Um, what I'm talking about specifically is the, is the ongoing shift, again, decades old, from in the employment of tenure-track faculty to uh, part-timers adjunct and postdocs and you know putting graduate students in the classroom and also there's a whole class of full-time non-tenure track people who are on one-year or three-year contracts temp you know short-term contracts um, what that means is that you spend years and years and years going through graduate school on average it takes nine years to get a phd in the humanities you're not getting paid very much you're foregoing the opportunity to be building another career and then you come out into this field where, you know, you probably have a less than 50% chance of getting a tenure track position, maybe even quite a bit less than that. I don't know what the numbers are now. And your options are this low wage adjunct work that's, you know, virtually minimum wage, or maybe this, you know, sort of contract work that doesn't give you job security. That's what I'm talking about by eating its young. Uh, and and uh, and this is at a time of again dropping ongoing you know big drops in enrollment in the humanities and to a lesser extent in the social sciences, but still significant. So it's not like we need to keep producing all these PhDs, but we do keep producing all these PhDs because the departments have no incentive not to. Again, it's like a broken market mechanism. Like if you put up, put stuff up for sale that nobody bought, you would just stop making as much stuff. But departments don't have any disincentive to producing more PhDs. And they actually want to have PhDs partly to have graduate students to teach in the classroom, you know, to teach their, you know, composition courses. And also because like professors need dissertations to direct because that's a big part of their professional identity. But then these, these young people are just, they're, they're kind of thrown out in the snow at that point. And that's, that's the punchline of my piece. I, I talk about all the specific bad choices that I made because I believed in other things than the things I was supposed to believe. But in the end, it was really just because jobs are drying up. What happened to me is what happens to thousands of people every year is that there's just no jobs for all these PhDs that are being produced. And universities have made the switch to adjuncts because it saves them money and it gives them flexibility. This is, we talk about marketization and the managerial university. It's easier for them. So uh, it's the fault of the universities ultimately that they're destroying the professoriate. And as a result, they're eating their young. Which is so weird, Bill, because I have talked to so many people who almost discuss academia as their lifeboat, as if everything else doesn't work out in my life. Well, I'll just go back to school and go into academia and get a job there as if it's a, a sure thing. But as your essay points out, 
it's a completely different culture once you are within academia. We have been speaking with award-winning essayist and critic William Derezowitz. He has returned to This Is Hell to talk about his essay, Why I Left Academia, Since You're Wondering, which appears in his new collection, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. You can find all of Bill's work at BillDerezowitz.com and follow Bill on Twitter at WDerezowitz. One last question for you, Bill, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise it is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response. You write, ultimately, the reason I left academia, since you're wondering, is the same that many others have. My story is a personal disappointment. The larger story is a tragedy. So what happens to a society, a culture? What happens to the outside world off campus if nothing is done about what you describe as a tragedy of advanced education, especially when it comes to literature and the arts? Will they both continue to be discredited? What happens to a nation? when it has such disrespect for an education, including literature, and more generally, the arts? <laughs> I, can't, I can't answer that in three minutes or even, you know. Um, That's why it's look, the question look, from Hal, Bill. Look, I mean, uh, in a certain respect, we're, we're seeing what's happening. I mean, I, uh, more and more people are writing about how our culture is becoming boring and stagnant. Uh, more and more people are writing about how academia has discredited itself as a place of free inquiry. And, you know, um, people are losing trust in it. And I think people are, are less and less inclined to support it. Uh, more and more people feel that students graduate from school without really having learned anything, including students feel this way, like they kind of got gypped. So I think uh, those are some of the things that happen. Bill, I really appreciate you being back on the show. I promise it will be more or less than seven years and one day until we talk with you again. I really do love your writing, and everybody should check out your new collection of essays. Thank you so much, The End of Solitude. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, take care. Live from the United States, where, I don't know, who knows anymore? This is is hell. If that conversation with William on the problems with academia today, if that was in some way enlightening or made you realize, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Lindsay, Please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? Do you have any idea what is the motivation behind this week's question from hell? Yeah, uh, Sebastian posted something in here saying this was inspired by a recent headline clicking on the headline it says because uh, i had no idea what it was the last week when it came to uh, uh food that you use a foreign term to call because i had no idea about the crew today dr oz uh, you know scandal or controversy <laughs> i have no idea what you're talking about see right good now. yeah i'm so glad <laughs> you are very was, lucky you were sick last week I, just, I totally tuned out you know sometimes you have to tune out <laughs> so what was the inspiration for this week's question from Mel? apparently it's this uh article about 
Mar-a-Lago and inventing Anna, the tale of a fake heiress oh. in an FBI investigation, which I don't know what this is about. Uh, I've I, tuned it out as well. Yeah, I kind of remember this from a few years ago, how these people were faking to be important people in order to get a- access to Mar-a-Lago, but that was years ago while uh, Trump was still president. So now at least I know what the context is. So again, please remind us, what is this week's question, Mel, and tell us how our listeners are answering. This week's question from hell is what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? Um, let's see. I was just told John Barron was our last response, and now I have to... Oh, yeah, that's right. That was the last response. John Barron. Yes. All right, so there's only a few. Well, my response, what I was going to say is I'm trying to get into one of those rich white people cults, you know, like... (laughs) pretend to believe in their spirituality (laughs) like go through all their initiations and get close to i mean i'm gonna try not to have sex with anybody but (laughs) (laughs) like i i have a friend whose family member has been impacted by a cult like this and i bought a whole book by a sociologist of religion and now i know so much about this cult that i could totally fake it but this isn't the cult where women get tattooed is it no i Uh, think that yeah like that's some there's some I don't know, HBO series about a cult like that. I think it's something similar, but I I don't really want to go into specifics. (laughs) This is affecting a real person I know. (laughs) I'm just trying to process Now that's a dazzling persona. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. All right. So let's see. After John Barron, (laughs) we have... That was from Woshek R. We have Dan K. says... Herschel Walker's love child. Oh, no, not that wow. one. Not that one either. <laughs> wow. No, nope. Yeah, that one. Wow. I don't oh, know which wow. one he's talking oh, about. Oh my god. Do you want to uh, tell me? Yeah, sure. It's like a Republican candidate for the uh, Georgia Senate seat, who is a former Heisman Trophy winner, college football player, went to the University of Georgia, so the Republican Party wanted to run him, seeing as how he had a very popular name. But and then he would come out, go out and do these speeches about family values. Well, they found out that he has a whole bunch of love child, <laughs> love children throughout the state of Georgia. So yeah, that's a little bit wow. That's a good one. Yikes. Okay. All right. So Andrew S. says a teenage masseuse. <laughs> yeah, that's creepy. <laughs> uh, Kim G. says dog walker. I like that one a lot. <laughs> that is a good one. That's a really good one. <laughs> it reminds me of my days as an Uber Eats driver going up to people's high rises. and It also makes me think of another good way to get into the circles of the rich and powerful, <laughs> which is dating apps because da- they don't discriminate on class the way that people do in real life you know so you can actually meet people who are way richer than you i thought you were gonna say or like a sugar daddy site i guess i I, I thought you were gonna say uh become an uber eats driver and that way you can get alongside (laughs) the rich and the famous i mean like if you can get if you take your the food up to someone's high rise and get them to invite you in sure i yeah i can't say that happened to me but (laughs) (laughs) all right that's all of our facebook responses do you want to hear some twitter responses or should we leave them for tomorrow let's leave them for tomorrow the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want you can check out all of our swag right now 
by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. I mentioned, yes, or mentioned earlier this week and earlier on today's show uh, that we uh, got a word from our, we have a word from our sponsors to share with you. And as we are completely listener supported, that means from you, our sponsors, our listening audience. We got another guest suggestion, uh, this one from a listener by the name of Lisa, who writes, Hi, I love your show. I came across an interesting article by Mike Sosterik and Gina Ratkovich called It Takes a Village. Horrible title but advancing attachment theory and recovering the roots of human health with the circle of seven essential needs they discuss the need for a quote moving beyond the one-dimensional toxic capitalist system of socialization i thought they would be good guests for your show many thanks and good wishes to you and your crew lisa lisa then includes a link to mike and gina's article at a website called research gate that article states the only way to actualize full human potential is to move the locus of human health and full development away from a single female or even a single nuclear family to a village, community, a society that understands humanity's complex constellation of needs and that is consequently and exclusively geared toward meeting those needs. Lisa, thank you for your guest suggestion, and it reminds me that hopefully in October we will have the return of feminist critic and theorist Sophie Lewis, who was on back in July of 2019 to discuss her book, Full Surrogacy, Now Feminism Against Family. That book was chosen by listeners as one of their favorites to be featured on This Is Hell in 2019. And Lisa and everyone else, that conversation is available for free to everyone who finds our discussion, uh, to everyone who finds our discussion with Sophie by getting, going to thisishell.com and searching on her last name, Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. We are hoping Sophie returns to the show in October because she has a new book scheduled to be released with the title Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation. In her new book, according to her publisher's website, Sophie traces the history of family abolitionist demands, beginning with 19th century utopian socialist and sex radical Charles Fourier, the Communist Manifesto, and early 20th century Russian family abolitionist Alexandra Kolontai. Turning her attention to the 1960s, Lewis reminds us of the anti-family politics of radical feminists like Shulamith Firestone and the gay liberationists, a tradition she traces to the queer Marxists bringing family abolition to the 21st century. This exhilarating essay looks at historic right-wing panic about black families and the violent implosion of the family on indigenous communities and insists only by thinking beyond the family can we begin to imagine who might and what might come after. And there's also another new book out about how uh, the social services that uh, families are of- often receive, people that are in need of assistance often receive, and how that kind of social service actually divides families as well. And maybe we'll have that interview on during the same week as Sophie Lewis. If that topic is, uh, interests you, as it does listener Lisa, check out our interview again with Sophie Lewis at thisishell.com. Keep listening as we will do our very best to get her to return to the show in October. And look for the article that Lisa suggested at ResearchGate by Mike Sosterik and Gina Ratkovich uh, called It Takes a Village 
unfortunately it's called that, but advancing attachment theory and recovering the roots of human uh, health with the circle of seven essential needs. And I believe that circle is the mid-20th century psychiatrist Abraham Maslow's uh, the first hierarchy, the hierarchy everybody is familiar with, the hierarchy of basic needs, which includes the needs for food, water, safety, security, belongingness, love, esteem, and self-actualization. Again, you can email us with your guest suggestions or topic suggestions for interviews at chuckatthisishell.com. And if we have your guest on air during that interview, we will thank you on air, just as we did earlier this week, when we thank Calvin Graham for sending us the suggestion of having Terrence Ray on the show earlier to talk about the flooding in eastern Kentucky. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History, on August 29th, 1907, 115 years ago this week, near Quebec City, Canada, construction of an enormous steel cantilever bridge over the St. Louis River was near completion after more than five years of work. And as this is Rotten History, my guess is... Uh, the bridge construction was never completed. But some workers on the bridge said they were having trouble getting the steel girders to align properly during the assembly, which is a problem when said steel girders are needed to, I don't know, hold up a bridge. Other workers said they noticed that some parts of the structure were beginning to bend. Also, not good when constructing a bridge. Theodore Cooper, the American engineer in charge of the project, was taking pains to reassure everyone that the architectural calculations of his team were correct and that the structure of the still incomplete bridge was sound. And that doesn't sound so great either when the engineer is trying to convince everybody, it's okay, don't worry about it. But a little after 5.30 p.m., August 29th, 1907, 115 years ago this week, with a deafening crash that could be heard for miles, the southern half of the bridge collapsed into the river. 75 bridge workers were killed and another 11 were seriously injured. About half the victims were Mohawk steel workers from a First Nations reserve near Montreal, naturally. If it was low-paid, dangerous work with few benefits and even fewer workplace safety precautions, you can bet that in early 20th century Canada, indigenous people were probably the ones doing the work. An inquiry would reveal that Cooper and the engineer Cooper and his team had failed to review their calculations properly after late changes were made to the bridge's structure, probably because they were too busy convincing everybody that their calculations were correct. Cooper was kicked off the project, and construction would resume the following year under a new and improved design. But after nine more years of work, just as a new central span was being lifted into position on September 11, 1916, it would fall into the St. Lawrence River, triggering a second bridge collapse that would kill another 13 workers and injure another 14. And have you ever noticed how much bad stuff happens on 9-11? There's this, this bridge collapsing, the, the, the U.S.-backed Chilean coup that put the dictator Augusto Pinochet and his reign of terror in power. There was a mass killing in Cambodia in the early 70s. And then there's the terrorist attacks on the Pentagon and World Trade Center. The Quebec Bridge was finally finished in 1919, and to this day, its central bridge span remains the longest of its kind in the world. And that can't be good if this bridge collapsed twice. But in 2015, Canadian government inspectors cited unacceptable levels of rust and corrosion in the bridge and warned that without a substantial increase in funding for maintenance and repair, the structural integrity of the bridge may soon be dangerously compromised. 
Another engineering report issued in June of this year has urgently warned that the 160 suspension cables of the Pierre Laporte Bridge, completed in 1970, which runs parallel to the Quebec Bridge, just 200 meters upstream from it, have now grown so weak that a catastrophic failure could occur at any time. It's almost as if the bridge should not only cross at another point, but not another point that's only 200 meters away. Or the St. Louis River maybe should simply not be crossed by a bridge anywhere near this location. No worries, as apparently the Canadian government is willing to build failed bridge on top of failed bridge on top of failed bridge. Who knows? Maybe they'll build enough bridges that eventually the debris of all those bridges will actually become a, a successful land bridge across the St. Lawrence, or maybe a dam. Congratulations, Canada, on not making a bridge to nowhere, as was built in Alaska, but building bridges that go directly to the bottom of the St. Lawrence River. Now, that's rotten history, and this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Tomorrow, we have... Brianna Muir, who wrote the Sabian's article, An Archaeology of Personhood and Abortion. Opinions about fetal personhood and abortion have fluctuated enormously throughout history and differ in surprising ways between cultures. There's a key word in the rest of the bio here that Lindsay's going to read that really drove me to book this guest. Please read and I'll tell you when you say it. Okay. <laughs> Brianna is a master's student in biological anthropology at the University of Central Florida. As an emerging bioarchaeologist. Bioarchaeologist. This is not a term I've ever heard and I am fascinated by what the hell is bioarchaeology? Okay, continue. <laughs> They're testing the biology of old bones. Or <laughs> yeah, I guess. She is interested in how integrative approaches can be used to address questions of personhood, identity, and agency in the past. In particular, she investigates how these factors may have shaped and influenced the person's lived experiences. Muir received a her BA from the Australian National University in 2019 and has undertaken fieldwork and research in the Philippines, Vanatu, am I saying that? Yeah. Australia. <laughs> in Australia. And of course, uh, as always, we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell and a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing today's show. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>